Sometimes applause are just necessary. Especially when you're overwhelmed with the love of Christ, when the final conclusion of the whole matter personally is, I'm willing to give myself away. That's all that I can do. And uh, that really is the heart of the Apostle Paul as we head to Romans 9 this morning. It's a heart that's overwhelmed with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as he's outlined us for us so clear in the first eight chapters. By the time we get to chapter 9, his personal conclusion, as you know, uh, the conclusion of any believer of any time, as you know, is uh, I need to give myself away to him who gave himself for me. And when we're overwhelmed with the love of God in Christ Jesus, and we turn from our sin and place our faith in Christ and the freedom that we know in Christ, we're willing to do that, aren't we? We're miraculously really persuaded of the grace of God to give our lives away to him. And we're equally amazed when people who know a lot about Jesus Christ and have lived privileged religious lifestyles are not equally willing to come to the same conclusion. Our hearts are grieved, aren't they? And that really is the beginning of chapter 9 that we'll get to in just a moment. The grief of a soul described when he contemplates those who know a lot about Christ but have refused to give their lives away to him. And that's the response of our hearts too when we know family well and we know friends well and we know that many of them have been reared in spiritual or religious privilege and they come so close, they come so aware and so close, but yet they refuse to embrace the same love in Christ that you have. And our hearts are left dismayed and discouraged. You folks know that we've been following the outline of the book of Romans, given to us by Alva J. McLean. And we know, by way of brief review, that chapter 1 and its first 17 verses is the introduction to the book. By the time we get to chapter 1 and verse 18 through chapter 3 and verse 20, we have our first major section of the book, which we uh, highlighted with one word, condemnation. And we gave a question and an answer to that question. And to each section, is the world lost? The question is asked, and Paul answers that by saying, yes, all the world is lost and guilty before God. In chapter 3 and verse 19, the heathen, the moralist, the, the religious person, and the whole world, they're all lost before God. The second major section we concluded before the holidays, salvation. Yes, all are condemned in sin, but what did God offer? He all offered salvation to all who are condemned in sin. And the righteousness of God revealed, and that's seen in chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 8 and verse 39, and the question is raised by McLean, how does God save sinners? And it's answered in chapter 8 and verse 1, in Christ. In Christ. 
And we understood justification in chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5 and verse 21. We understood sanctification, both positional and practical, and go back and listen to those sermons in chapter 6 and 7. And in chapter 8, we understood preservation. We were kept securely in Christ, and, and studying those chapters were great blessings to our heart, weren't they? And, and, uh, and now we come to chapters 9 through 11, and Alva J. McLean gives a one-word description for this section, and he calls it vindication. Vindication. And this takes us through chapter 9, 10, and 11. And the question is raised, why was Israel set aside? And the answer is that God might show mercy to all men. Why is Israel set aside? And so that through the local church, in this time, in this era, in this dispensation of grace, the fame and the glory of Jesus Christ could be spoken and lived out and perpetuated through the local church. Chapter 9 talks about God's sovereign oversight of how that mercy is demonstrated to the whole world. Chapter 10 talks about man's moral responsibility to respond to that righteousness which is only found in Christ and not the law. And chapter 11 tells us of God's merciful purpose being fulfilled, not just through the church, but ultimately in the restored, spiritually restored remnant of Israel, where all of Israel is rallied again, not just demonstrative in the local church through Messianic Jews, but for time, and we'll discuss that in weeks ahead. And then chapter 12 through 16 just gives us a one-word description we'll get to uh, before the end of this year. Uh, exhortation. How should a man walk? The question is raised in those chapters. And chapter 12 and verse 2 tells us he walks by being transformed. What does a transformed daily life look like? Okay. But that's later on in 2018. But for the next several weeks together, we'll be working our way through chapters 9 through 11. Three chapters that I believe fit perfectly into the flow of Paul's writing to the Romans. As many of you know, Paul's writings are often divided into two sections, doctrinal and practical. The question is often asked of Romans, where does the doctrinal portion of the book of Romans begin? Where does it end? But then where does the practical portion of the book of Romans begin? Well, after much personal consideration, prayer, and research, it's my heartfelt belief that chapter 9 is the beginning of the practical section of this book. It's certainly full of doctrine, but you'll find that's true of every practical portion of Paul's writings. <clears throat> Everything we do daily is because of what we know scripturally. Would you agree? So there's always going to be an underpinning of doctrine in the way we live. But for our purposes here, I would like for us to consider that this is where the Apostle Paul begins to put flesh and blood on the doctrine of salvation in his own life. And it's very interesting, I believe this, because he starts with his own personal application in the first five verses of chapter 9. He starts to speak in a way that's different than what he's done, the way he's spoken so far. 
A lot of people believe that chapters 1 through 8 is the doctrinal portion, and beginning in chapter 12, that's the practical portion, right? Be transformed. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. This is your logical sacrifice in life. And they believe that chapters 9 through 11 is just like this parenthetical insertion that the Apostle Paul puts in here that's kind of unrelated to chapters 1 through 8 and chapters 12 to 16. And I think that's foolishness to do that. This makes absolute practical sense, as all Scripture does, if you understand immediate context, chapter context, and chapter context within the context of a whole book. When you understand its author, when you understand the recipients of the letter, it all makes sense, and we're going to try to do that as we move forward together. In the next few weeks, we study these three chapters. Chapter 9 seems to be, at the beginning, the personal outworking of the doctrine of salvation in Paul's own life, not positionally, and not only immediately practically for him, but in, but in a way, in relationship to something Paul, even in his own mind, cannot grasp. It's difficult for him to grasp. And it's in relationship to why do some people who have heard the gospel over and over still spurn the gospel? The direct application is to his own people, Israel. We're going to discuss that towards the end of today's sermon. But let's read these first few verses and I'm going to begin in a way that I hope ties the doctrinal into the practical here as Paul draws the circle around himself and says, okay, I'm struggling with something. There's something I don't understand. And then verses 6 through the end of the chapter is going to help us in future weeks process in our own minds how to work out Paul's struggle because we're going to find out after reading Paul's struggle and describing it this morning, you and I struggle in the same way that Paul did. And until we get past the struggle, really getting on to living the Christian life for us is going to lead to us somewhat paralyzed. So it's critical for uh, us to understand these things uh, to be sure. What does he say here? And you'll notice here, I believe, seven personal pronouns Paul uses in the first five verses. He uses the personal pronoun I five times, and I believe my or myself twice. So he's really opening up his heart to us. There's a struggle he's having. He said, I am telling the truth in Christ. In other words, I'm in him. I'm secure. I get what I just taught you in chapter 8, which began in... Uh, at the beginning of the chapter and in the chapter of chapter 8 with the phrase, in Christ. I know I'm in him. So it's a proper way for him to begin his flow of thought in this chapter. I am telling you, I know I'm in Christ. I'm not lying. I'm, I'm assured that I'm in Christ. Even my conscience, governed by the Spirit of God, testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. He's layering it on pretty thick here, isn't he? He's really opening up his heart to us, but letting know that his heart has, has been contemplating this struggle in a wise fashion, apparently for some time. 
And what's that struggle that the Holy Spirit can give witness to in his own heart that's fully secured, assured in Christ Jesus? In other words, the most mature people in any congregation will struggle if the Apostle Paul struggled this way. And I will tell you, I struggle with this. And I would never claim to be the most mature saint in this room, ever. I struggle intensely with his struggle. So if you've been in the Lord for some time and you're walking with him now, I know you're struggling with this same thing. And if we don't, if we don't work out this struggle that we're going to discuss here in a little bit, we'll find out that it will be hard for us to get up and live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Because what we find out as we grow in the Lord and we're, because we're in Christ, we become increasingly burdened for those who know about him but refuse to walk with him. And that grief in our heart is such an agony that it can actually paralyze our joy of who we are in Christ and distract us, discourage us. It does me. It was Paul. And what we understand here is this is, this is a struggle that even the Holy Spirit of God was not disappointed with. The Holy Spirit of God, apparently, according to Paul's conscience, knew that this would be a very real struggle for anyone who was a discerning, mature Christian. So I want to stop there just for a moment. And for all of you that are in Christ, I want you just to think about whether this is even indeed a struggle in your life. So we haven't described it yet. Well, just hang on. We're going to describe it. But is this a struggle in your own life? Because apparently it's going to be a struggle for every believer who's growing. Right? This was not just an apostolic struggle. This is a struggle of a personal testimony given to a letter to of people who are growing in the Lord. Remember, no criticisms leveled against this church in all 16 chapters. This was a church that was a solid church, a maturing church, a growing church. Paul's giving this. All scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching our heart should be growing in its struggle of wondering how in the world can some who know so much refuse to give their lives away to one who's given all for them? Why, God? Why? Why? My son, my daughter, my dad, my mom, my husband, my wife, my friend more than familiar with who Jesus Christ is, more than familiar with a portion, if not the whole of the scriptures, more than familiar with my life and watching transforming grace change me. How in the world can they not see? Paul says here, verse three, verse two, I have what? Great sorrow. And unceasing grief, where? Yeah. The language here tells us that this was probably something Paul struggled with for the whole of his salvation experience. Unceasing sorrow 
and great grief, increasing grief. You say, well, Pastor Tim, I thought there was joy that Jesus brought to our hearts in Christ. There is. There is for sure. And a lot of liberal commentators will take this and say, see, Paul's struggling with his salvation. That's not the fact at all. Especially when you look at the greater context of this chapter, within the whole context of the book. He has great joy in his heart. We've just talked about that security in chapter 8. But now he's opening up his chest, and in the midst of that joy, there can be an increase in grief. And it's a, it can be a, a governing grief if we're not careful. You can have an increase in grief without it being a governing grief or a governing sorrow. He's just saying this is part of the human experience as we try to walk with the Lord. And it's in my heart. He goes on to say in verse 4, For I could with that, I would, that if with, excuse me, I need to get my readers out here, and I'm really trying hard, but they're stuck in my suit coat pocket. All right? All right. Here we go. For I could wish that with myself, with, that I myself were accursed. I wish that I was separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, who are the fathers Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. We're going to take a look at the end of our time together this morning. Each one of those descriptive phrases of the privilege of the Israelites in the Old Testament. But for now, we focus on this phrase not just great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, it goes farther than that. Paul's saying here, if I could wish that I myself were a curse. Now, if you underline that word for if I could wish, if you study that out in the Greek grammar, Paul's not saying that this is a possibility or even a probability. He's saying literally, I know I can't do this, but if I could. This is his heart for people who know all that they should know to come to a saving knowledge of grace in Christ, but they've said no. Right? I would if I could, but I can't, so I won't. That's the idea here. That I would be anathema. Same word used in Galatians chapter 1 for um, someone who, again, aligns themselves with work salvation after they've been saved because of the work of Christ alone. Right? That's another gospel. Let that person who preaches that you're saved through good works be accursed. I wish I could be called accursed again. If my nation, my people by blood, the Jewish people could be saved. If millions could be saved and me one condemned, I would do it. That's my guttural feel. This is my reality. This is my agony for those who are around me, who are closest to me, my family, my friends, my people, my nation could be saved. But why start here? We're going to look at some theological reasons why Paul starts here. I mean, obviously, the, the, the passage is going to outline for us that, 
that the, the time for the purposes of the, of the Jews was temporarily over, and now the local church is going to be exalted as the organization, if you will, the entity, the institution on earth that would bring the good news to the world that the Jews would fail to bring because they rejected Jesus Christ. Now the Gentiles are going to be reached because of the church. We're going to discuss all that, but why does Paul start here? And remember, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for instruction. Why does he start here? He's grieved over those closest to him in biology and in proximity who know but still refuse. How many of us have ever thought, man, I'd be willing to experience hell for eternity so my family tree could live? When's the last time any of us, including your pastor, actually thought I would give up myself so that all could believe? God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Correct? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And our hearts always grieve, not just for global apostasy, not just for global or even regional or national refusal to reject the gospel, but our hearts grieve most for those who are of blood and of closest proximity to us who refuse to be transformed by the grace of God in Christ. I want to tell you a little story and then we'll wrap up outlining these phrases together that describe the privilege of the nation of Israel. My grandfather on my dad's side was a quiet man some say he was the definition of old-fashioned in many ways. He loved antiques. He loved farming. And both women and children should be seen and never heard. <laughs> he was the beginning and the end of all things in his life and for others around him. He was to be served, and I can't remember one time in my life seeing him serve his wife, his children, or his grandchildren. He never served at church, and if he ever made it to church, it was only on Easter and Christmas. As far as we knew, he grew up in rural Garrettsville. He had little to no spiritual privilege at that time. There was an uncle, though, in our family named Joel Dana Hall, who knew Christ, and he was passionate about his walk with God. Joel prayed unceasingly, unceasingly, for his family tree. Truly, today, anyone that has come to know Christ in our family most likely knows the Savior because of the prayers that were answered by great Uncle Joel Dana. My grandfather was influenced by Joel early in his teenage years, so much so that my grandfather moved to Chicago to serve at Old Moody Church as a young adult. He served alongside my great uncle, 
My grandfather in time became the head usher of Old Moody Church. Joel Dana was the head of Cole Portage, which is evangelistic outreach in the city there in Chicago where the school was and is. For a time that seemed that Harlan Potter, my grandfather, was quite enamored with Christ. But then tragedy struck his family. His father was seriously injured in a farming accident. Infection set into that injury, and he died soon thereafter. It was custom for the oldest child in the home to return to take care of the farm, to take care of mom, and to take care of the younger children. My grandfather left his service at Moody Church under Harry Ironside and came home to a bitter and angry mother. They didn't go to church. And for over 55 years of my grandfather's life, he would reluctantly be willing to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. He waxed bitter like his mother. He married outside of Christ. He reared his children in a religious fashion outside of Christ. But he was always um, non-communicative of any desire he had to follow the Lord he said he once knew. All three of my grandfather's children, Bob, my father, Jim, my uncle, and Pam, my aunt, came to New Christ because of Uncle Joel Dana Hall. And my grandmother, my grandmother did as well. When my father was saved, he felt impressed to head into full-time gospel ministry. Fearfully, he told my grandfather, who responded, and I quote, I wrote this down years ago, if you become a preacher, Bob, you will have no place in this home ever again, and you'll be wasting your life. Now get out. Fewer things in life are more hurtful than being abandoned by your parent, especially when you are just trying to follow the Lord. Over a decade and a half or so, the relationship was somewhat mended, but never on a spiritual level. Dad was always found giving and serving my grandfather, who expected it. Dad was always graciously attempting to share Christ with my grandfather, who pretended to lend a deaf ear to the conversations. Growing up at time, we as children would ask my dad on the way back home from visits to Grandpa Potter's house, Dad, do you think Grandpa knows Jesus? He's awfully grumpy and mean. My dad would respond, kids, Grandpa has heard about Jesus many, many times underneath one of our country's best and well-known preachers. He served in that church for years. but it doesn't seem that he ever believed. That's always puzzled us. And I would be less than honest if I didn't tell you that my grandfather's life remains a mystery to me.
And so many of us have shared similar circumstances, haven't we? When we've prayed so long and we've witnessed so much and we've loved so compassionately. And at memorial service, we stand next to caskets and all we can say is, I just don't know. And you struggle, don't you? And if that struggle wasn't there, that's really what we should be afraid of. If you don't care, then I wonder if your life will end up like my grandfather's. So my struggle, I believe, is exactly Paul's struggle in these first five verses, and his struggle is my struggle. His struggle is our struggle. As we look at verse chapters 9 through 11 together, why, oh why, do some who know the gospel so well and have others live it out in front of them for so long seem to reject it? Why are some just merely willing to be religious have a knowledge of God and of Christ without knowing him personally while spurning a personal walk with their creator. My grandfather's been dead for years and I still struggle. I still struggle. It is a complete mystery to me how someone could be in an environment like he was for so long. And we don't know if the scales were ever pulled from his eyes. Yes, folks, I understand God is the saver of a soul and the judge of a soul, not Tim Potter. But if we're to know someone by their fruits, we just don't know. For those of you who are here this morning, you've been coming for weeks and months and years. You've been eyewitness to a spouse or to a child or to a friend that's been transformed by the saving grace of Christ. You've seen those who used to be alcoholics never pick up and imbibe a, a drop of booze since being in Christ. You've seen someone that was an abuser of a substance just all of a sudden stop. You've seen this person who struggled with rage in the home and verbal and physical abuse of your children in a home. And all of a sudden they came to know Christ and they just stopped. You've been here in a multitude of witnesses that have, that have experienced and live out in front of you the same transforming grace of Christ, and there, there is no human explanation as to why or how someone could actually live that way. You've had Christ presented to you in preaching, in the reading of Scripture, in the lifestyles of family, and you continue to come here every week under great privilege, and you still say, no. 
But it's never too late. It's never too late to say yes. There are those around you who struggle intensely over your rejection of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They're going to love you compassionately until the day you breathe your last. And I would never ask you to come to know Christ to assuage their grief. You come to know Christ because the wrath of God abides upon you until you do. He bore your grief and their grief and their sorrow so that you might look to Him as the author and finisher of your faith. But how long, my friends? How long? Some are watching by live stream, and you do so weekly, religiously. How long are you going to wait? Will you persist to live your life in spiritual denial? the infinite grace of God in Christ, while you continue to lather yourself and saturate yourself with a great company of souls who have embraced him and experienced his transforming power, while you rationalize with a millennia of thoughts as to why a personal surrender of your own to Christ in your life is superfluous or needless. My conflict is this. How can so many know so much and reject so easily? How can so many be heartless to remain unthankful and unresponsive to Christ's sweet invitation to come unto him and be unloaded of their great load of sin and to know peace and rest in their souls, which only he can offer? Why? How? This is Paul's struggle. And it should be our struggle. I want to let you know. As you hold your finger here and go over to the end of chapter 11. At the end of this three chapter section we've entitled Vindication. Paul starts off with a great increasing grief in his heart. But look how he finishes. Romans chapter 11, and let's consider here verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This section starts off with personal grief, but I want to let you know the teaching of the next several weeks we all ought to be a part of because that grief when rationalizing through the word of God with the help of the spirit of God will find its way to worship and to rejoicing when we understand. Okay? 
So this grief, while it might always be a part of our lives, there is a way through understanding the word of God and the mind of God, as much as we humanly can, will work its way to worship God. Okay? So let's go back to chapter 9 as we wrap up this morning. It says here in verse number four, if I can draw your attention there. We'll back up into verse three. These are my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This is national Israel. These, Paul says, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew, okay? I have no problem in saying that. I'm proud to be Jewish. That's literally what he's saying here. They're Israelites. Okay. They're Israelites. I'm sure that sounded good on live stream. Yeah, thanks to Emily, man. Emily cool and got me some tea for my throat, too. We're just a family on live stream. All right. Very unprofessional of me. I apologize. All right. I'm proud of my heritage. I'm not, I'm not a reluctant to tell you what I once was, uh, and I still am, who are Israelites, to whom belongs what? The adoption of sons. In the margin of your Bible, this is not a spiritual adoption of sons according to the immediate context. This was an international adoption of sons. This goes clear back to the Abrahamic covenant where the nation of Israel, for no good human reason, was chosen by a sovereign God for the display of his glory in the world and the dispensation of law. They were adopted nationally. This is not in reference to a spiritual adoption. We saw that back in chapter 8. They also knew the glory of the covenants. Now, manuscript evidence tells us, for those of you that like to be deeper Bible students, that the majority of manuscript evidence would tell us that covenants is singular and not plural here. I'll let you wrestle that out in your own study of the scriptures. But the Bible truth is here that these covenants explained for the Jewish people that from them would come a savior, would come a Messiah. And God's sovereign choice of them was for the purpose of the coming of this Messiah that would bring salvation to the whole world. They were children of covenants. And in addition to that, they, were, they had been given the law. I believe this is in direct relationship to the law of Moses, which we would know as the first five books of the Old Testament, like the Pentateuch, okay? Okay. And what does David tell us in Psalm 19, 7 about the law? The law of the Lord is perfect, and it what? It converts the soul. There was enough information given about this coming Messiah 
through the covenants, covenant, if you will, for even those who by oral tradition had the law read to them, because no one was carrying around a Bible. There was enough given about Christ for them to have their heart transformed by Him. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's all-sided. It's complete. And its intention was to transform, miraculously by grace, the heart of a person, which only God can do. They were given the law. And we know from the book of Galatians, the law's intent was to teach us that we could not keep it and that we were imperfect and that we needed someone of perfection, the Messiah of these covenants, to turn to, to trust for our salvation. In addition to that, they were given the, the service. Italics here is probably in your New American Standard Bible, and that's just in relationship to, you have been eyewitnesses of the priestly order and their responsibilities of temporarily atoning for sin in all of these ways. And you've been told, pre-Abrahamic covenant, that someday there would come a lamb that would take away the sin of the whole world. And, and this temple service is just to show you temporarily what ultimately Christ would do. You've been given the temple service. And my friends, that had to be pretty graphic to be eyewitnesses of the, uh, of the bloodied hands of the priests and the slaughtered headless sheep, right? I mean, there was, you, you guys know, if you know the Bible, this is, this is graphic picture for spiritual purposes. These were privileged people. And the promises just write Hebrews 11 there. <laughs> Abraham believed the promises. It was counted unto him for righteousness. So many promises. Verse 5, whose are the fathers. In other words, from our spiritual or national religious forefathers comes Christ according to the flesh. Again, the Savior of the whole world comes from the promise of these covenants made to our fathers. Go back and listen to Pastor Hobie's sermon from Hebrews chapter 1 last week and certainly clarify a lot of this for you. And then when you're done listening to it, push rewind and listen to it again. But it's something about this Christ that Paul wants to emphasize here. It's Christ according to the flesh. Yes, Christ was a Jew, right? but he wasn't just a Jew. Right? You see, the Jews believed that a Messiah, a king would come for them of their own blood and that he would rule on earth and that they would have sole ownership of this coming king, this Messiah. And that arrogance and unwillingness to bow their knee to him as savior because they only looked at him as king would lead to their ultimate rejection of him as savior because they only wanted a king. And so yeah, he was Jewish by flesh, but he doesn't stop there. How does he conclude in his description of Christ? Who is over all? 
And he's who? He's God. He's God and he's blessed forever. And that says it. That does it. Amen. Amen. So yeah, he's Jewish. But he's completely divine. He's man, but he's God. And so Jewish person, you need to understand that his ways are not your ways. And his thoughts, not your thoughts. He's given you an opportunity. You've said no. Now the opportunity is going to be given to the whole world in the dispensation of the church, the dispensation of grace. And Israel, your time's coming. I just want to end with this. You know, he's writing this to the Roman church. Do you know how many, you know how many, you know how many Jews were sitting in those seats listening to this letter being read? Not many at all. So that's why I think some commentators make the mistake of looking at chapters 9 through 11 as this great, big, grandiose address to the Jews. It wasn't. It was not. If you look at the recipients of this letter, the majority of saints in Rome were Gentiles. Paul is just simply giving here a personal example of his own grief in his own heart of not understanding why in the world people could say no to something that was so obvious that he had experienced in his own heart. And then as he works out God's sovereign plan with Israel in the rest of chapter 9, it's going to be very easy for us to see God's sovereign plan for all the Gentiles in doing so. But he starts with grief and compassion over souls who knew but said no. We have to, we have to land there first. If we don't land there first and we go into the rest of chapters 9 through 11, we will come out a more cold, well-learned, institutionalized organization. The heart of God is given to the Apostle Paul in the first five verses, my friends. We're going to be led from grief to joy, as we know. We're going to sing that doxology together at the end of chapter 11, very willingly, because we're going to be able to process through his word and understanding some things that, uh, well, some will be mysteries for sure, but other things obvious. And how God works out his mercy in Christ through, for all men in all time. And how do we begin this? Look at verse 6. We'll start next week. But is it not as though the word of God has failed? None of us would say that. So where's the answer to our grief? It's in the word. Amen. It's in the word. And what we'll find out here in the rest of chapter 9, Paul starts off with his personal struggle, and, and he answers his own personal struggle. So it's kind of like he's having this conversation with himself in this letter that's read before the whole church of Rome. Here's my struggle. Here's the beginning of the answer to my struggle in verse 6. And he kind of works this out in his own soul through verse 12, but then look at the way verse 14 starts. This kind of gives you somewhat of a, a, a breakdown of chapter Number nine, in verse 14, he says, what shall what? We say then, the pronouns changes. So now he's got the Roman people engaged. Now he has personally opened up his heart and the people in the church of Rome are saying, you know what? I've struggled with the same thing. 
Paul, you're struggling with. It's been really good to hear how you begin to work it out. Man, so here's a question I have, Paul. And Paul assumes that the question's going to be asked. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. And so the question in the Roman hearers' hearts were, yeah, I've been having that struggle, Paul, too. And my issue, my issue is with the justice of God. I've had the tendency to question his fairness, his equity. And I know I shouldn't, but I am. There's no injustice with God, right, Paul? No, God forbid. And then he explains. And he works out, he helps them work out their issues with the struggle they're having in their own souls all the way through verse 29. And then within the thought processes of the grammar, chapter 9 and verse 30, all the way through chapter 10 is really one answer to another question. In verse 30, what shall we say then together? So Paul gives his struggle, works out before them his own struggle by use of the word. Then he assumes a question they would ask, and he works that out with them. And then he says, okay, all of us are in this together, so what shall we all say together in relationship to God's sovereign scheme of saving men? And chapter 9 and 30 through the rest of chapter 10 talks about man's moral obligation to look to the perfect righteousness of Christ and not works. So it kind of gives you a little bit of a breakdown of where we're headed with the thought processes beginning next week, okay? But for today, is there grief in your soul over family and friends who don't know Jesus? When you rub shoulders with the lost, do you weep? Or are you ambivalent? Is your heart like Jesus in Luke 19 when he looked upon Zion, Jerusalem for the last time and he stood outside the city before the Passion Week and what did he do? He just wept. And what was he weeping over? Those who knew so much and received so little. Do you grieve? For those of you here this morning of great privilege, great religious privilege, not just church and Bible knowledge, but the living out of people in your life who know Jesus. You've watched so long, and you've given nothing more than a simple tip of the hat to the change of life. Refusing to understand that only an omnipotent, all-powerful Savior could bring about that change. And if you knew it, your life has been intentionally living in denial of him and his power so that you could live your own way. And the scripture would ask you to repent of your pride and once and for all turn from your sin and escape the wrath of God which abides upon you and trust Christ who came to take that wrath away and that punishment away from you. Don't wait. Your family, your friends, they're crying out for you with great struggle Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Don't wait. Don't wait. He's the only one that can save. 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 Okay? Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for the simplicity of your word. We thank you for the transparency of the Apostle Paul who opened up his heart to share his own grief and his own struggle. And I know that many of us are struggling the same way. And I pray, Lord, that we would know your grace and that we would understand the teaching of your word in these weeks following so that our grief can lead to, to doxology, to praise, through a proper understanding of your word. But Lord, my heart most goes out this morning to those who know so much. Have never turned to Christ. I pray that today would be the day that they would say, you know what? I have rejected, I have caused the grief in my Savior's soul. And if you're here this morning and that's your person, you just pray this prayer. Lord, I know that my sins caused you grief. I know my rejection of Christ has caused grief to my wife or to my husband, my children, my friends in this congregation. They've been waiting so long. They've been agonizing so long. But Lord, today, I turn from my sin not because of their grief, but because of my Jesus who bore my grief and my sorrow on the cross. Lord, my sin put you there. Lord, I'm sorry for your slaughter. Lord, I'm sorry for your death. Lord, forgive me of my sin. Lord, I desperately need you and you alone to save me. Forgive me. I believe. Once and for all, I believe. Thank you. Thank you for bearing my grief and my sorrow. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for bringing rest to my soul this morning. Thank you for your patience and your mercy. Thank you for the testimony of your grace, not just in your word, but thank you for the testimony of your grace exhibited so clearly in my loved ones and in my Christian friends. Thank you for their patience with me. But Lord, today I believe. All heads are bowed, no one looking around. As everyone say, Pastor Tim, that was me this morning. Pray for me. I'm not going to have you stand or be embarrassed. But I'm done just being a good person without Jesus. I need the goodness of Jesus, and today I trusted him. Pray for me, anyone at all. Pray for me. Raising your hand doesn't save you. If you prayed that prayer, the Lord heard you. And if you prayed it and you meant it, you sensed the relief in your heart already. I want you to come and tell us so that we can help you grow. So we can help you grow. Father in heaven, we thank you. We pray the spirit of God's work in each and every one of our hearts, both those who believe and who yet unbelieve. There are some here, Lord, who are almost persuaded. I, take, I pray that today, if not this hour, the next would be the day of their salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.